Please remain standing out of respect for God's holy word and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 7 and the first 13 verses. The Gospel of John chapter 7, the first 13 verses. And this is God's holy word. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because of the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, John Calvin said about the Gospel of John in comparison to the three so-called or called synoptic gospels. He said the three uh, synoptics show us Jesus' body, but the gospel of John shows us Jesus' soul. And this is what we have seen so far in the gospel of John, Jesus' soul, Jesus' heart. And last time we have heard what happened after he preached his sermon on him being the bread of life in the synagogue of Capernaum. And how even those who were considered disciples complained that it was too hard a sermon for them to take. They were offended by his words and they turned against him. And we see how there is more and more hostility against the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have only covered like a third of the Gospel of John, and the hostility against the Lord Jesus Christ is increasing dramatically. And we also saw how Jesus reacted to this upheaval among those who called or were called disciples of his, and we saw uh, that he did not backpedal that he did not apologize for his sermon, and that he did not try to talk anyone out of leaving. 
On the contrary, he asked the twelve if they also wanted to leave. And we learned a valuable lesson there. That we must not compromise when it comes to the proclamation of God's truth. We, we live in a day and age, and we live certainly in this country. I, I'm reminded of this over and over again, in this country especially. I have to say this, even being a foreigner. We live in a culture where people get offended over nothing. I have never seen a situation where people get so easily offended than in this country at this day and age. I've even seen that change in the 20 years that I've been here. Offended over nothing, but especially when it comes to the demands of God's Word. And yet, we are not to rub off any edges of God's truth for anyone. And if people don't like that, there's nothing we can do about it. And if they leave, they leave. All we can do is pray for them. But of course, we hope and pray for very different reactions, a, a humble reaction like the one of Peter after Jesus had asked the disciples if they wanted to leave as well. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the reaction we want to hear. This is what we want to see in those who hear the faithful preaching of God's Word. That they say, yes, it is sometimes hard to hear, but it is the Word of God, and we will put ourselves under it. Let's pause for a moment and think about this. How do we deal with things that go to the core of our being? I could, I could say it more bluntly, but the older I get, the more I realize blunt often gets you nowhere. But I say it anyway, how do we deal with criticism if it comes from the Word of God? I'm not talking about silly criticism on a human level that is not grounded in the Word of God. That's a completely different category. I'm talking about proper criticism by the Word of God, which often comes through somebody else. Are we like Peter in chapter 6? That, that we say, yes, it's hard. To, I mean, it's always hard to hear, is it not? I mean, I can testify it's hard for me to hear. And I, I thank God that I have friends that love me enough that sometimes take me aside and say, Brother, i got to tell you something. And boy, it's, it's hard to swallow, but the Holy Spirit makes you see that, that they're right, and, and then you rejoice ultimately that God gives you friends, that He gives you other ministers or ministers who will tell you the truth, and that He gives you a willing heart to hear, to bow yourself, and to change. That's one of the marks of a true believer. But then you deal with those who are never wrong. Never wrong. That they're very critical, all right, and they, they, when you preach, and, and they're more blunt, and they're, they're harsher, they better let them have it, Pastor. Let them have it. But not me. Because I'm always right. In fact, I'm the one to tell you when you're wrong. I am the controller. I am the one in this congregation who makes sure that everyone's right, because I am the one who knows it all. 
Ask yourself for a moment. Who are you? And Peter is different. I mean, Peter has changed already. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's a reaction of a humble faith. These are the words of a man who loves God. And God has conquered his pride. And this is what I pray and hope for this congregation, of course. That we, we might become people who love to hear all of God's Word, who willingly submit under its authority because we love its author. See, the more I, I think and the more I see uh, what's going on uh, in the Reformed world, I have to issue a warning. Yes, I have to issue a warning. Be careful, especially you young men, that Christianity for you is not just a cause. You know, it can easily become a cause to be on the right side of all issues, to, to be that warrior for a Christian nation, to, to be the one who, who stands on the right side on every issue. Christianity is not a cause. Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ. And there's a new brand of, of angry people arising in the Reformed movement who see Christianity as a cause, and everything's a battle, especially on the inside. A, a, a new kind of, of inquisition that constantly seeks to find faults with everybody. But, but who never humbles him or herself under Jesus Christ. Who can never sing wholeheartedly, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No, 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 no. That, that more wants to sing, thank you God, that I'm not like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. Not like this wretch over there. That is not biblical Christianity. You see what Jesus said about this Pharisee. The tax collector went justified to his home. The Pharisee did not. Peter's pride was conquered. And Jesus had to deal with these people, with these kind of people, as he challenged them in his sermon. And now today, with chapter 7 before us, we will leave Capernaum in Galilee, and we, we will move south again to the province of Judea. He will go to Jerusalem. It says that after his sermon in the synagogue of Capernaum, Jesus remained in Galilee for a little while, because the Jews in Judea were already seeking to kill him. He probably stayed about six months, and we are now in the month of October, of the year 29 AD. And it says that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, this Feast of Tabernacles was at the time of the year when the fruit was gathered in and the people made for themselves booths of leaves in which they dwelt for seven days according to God's instruction in Leviticus chapter 23 where he said to them, you shall dwell in booths for seven days, 
all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do, do you see why these feasts like the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths were an integral part in the life of God's people. Do you see what their point was? They, they were given as reminders for the people to remember God's covenant faithfulness and that the generations after them would be raised with this awareness of their covenant relationship. So I tell you, there's a point when churches uh, have celebrations after 10 or after 20 or even after 100 years. There's nothing wrong with that, to remind following generations of God's faithfulness through all these years. If God gives it, we will have that at some point. And we will look at each other and, and, and we will laugh and we will have a good time talking about, you remember when it was hard to pay the rent for this place where we were in the Christian school? Do you remember? And how faithful God was through all these years. How often have we thought that's the end? And here we are. And generations after us. And see how many of these young people who were still toddlers at that time or babies are now elders and deacons, maybe pastors. Oh, God is good. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast like that to remind God's people people of their God's covenant faithfulness. Well, what official reminder feasts do we have today in our day and age as God's people? For example, baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs of God's faithfulness within the covenant of grace. Then we have the Lord's Day with worship as a covenant renewal ceremony between God and us every single week. Now, because this Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, urged him to go to Jerusalem. It, it was a big feast, and they wanted Jesus to go. Verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, in a first cursory reading, this might sound encouraging, but it is actually not. You have to see what Jesus' brothers are trying to do here. They are trying to help their clumsy brother, as it were, to gain publicity. They're giving him marketing advice in his campaign for his cause. And they're telling him to go to Jerusalem, but not for the sake of pleasing the Father. No, no, they're trying, uh, they, they're seeing this as a marketing opportunity for Jesus to promote himself, to build his platform, to work some miracles, to do his magic. It wasn't that they didn't believe in the miracles, they did. They did believe in the miracles, but the real problem was, as we see in verse 5, that they did not believe in Him. The view of the Messiah was similar to those 
of the Jewish crowds back in Galilee who had partaken in the feeding of the 5,000 and now had turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, the concept of the Messiah was not Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, but for him to defeat the hated Roman oppressors and restore Jewish rule in Israel. So not only did they have a wrong view of the Messiah, but perhaps they didn't even believe Jesus to be that Messiah. And after Christ's resurrection, they finally did get it right. But in our text, here in chapter 7, they are still very confused, to say the least. But let us now look at Jesus' reaction after his brothers tried to talk him into going to Judea. He says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Well, and then it might get a little confusing in verse 10 when he says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Now, this might be a little bit of a puzzling verse at first, because first Jesus explains to his brothers why he would not immediately go to Jerusalem as they had suggested, but a little while later he does go, but in private. Or he can translate in secret. Why is that? It is, of course, not that he was being stubborn or even deceptive. Our Lord is absolutely free of sin. We know that. No, he didn't initially go up to Jerusalem simply because his time had not yet fully come. It's as he says. You see, often we think that a particular time for something has come and something just has to happen at a certain time and God now just has to do something. But we tend to forget that God alone decides when the proper time for any action is. God has decreed every single event in history for its own particular time, including Christ's journey to Jerusalem and his suffering on the cross. For his brothers, of course, any time works. In their own minds, they are lords over their lives. They go whenever they want. They do not have a clue about God's great redemptive plan. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 6, your time is always ready. Or, or your time is always here. You're always ready to do something when you think it's time. And his statement in verse 7 again exposes the sad contrast between them and himself when he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? Do you understand his meaning? Do you understand why the world could not hate its brothers? This is a scary saying. We find the answer in verse 5. 
The world could not hate them because at that particular point in time, they were unbelievers. They were of the world. They had grown up with Jesus, of course. They had been walking with him throughout his earthly ministry. They had seen the miracles. They have heard his teachings. They had never seen him sin ever, and yet they did not believe in him. You see, it is God's timing even for their regeneration. For them finally seeing the light. But because they were unbelievers at that particular point in time, the world did not hate them in principle. My dear friends, when you truly and sincerely follow Christ, when you truly deny yourself and take up your cross daily, when you live an uncompromising Christian life, when your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then the world will hate you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is the one thing that I tried to preach and explain in this so-called Christian town over and over again. And this caused probably the most counter-reaction among those in the pew that Christianity has a cost. And that you live as a Christian ought to live, there will be persecution. And this is a problem both in the pulpit and it is a problem in the pew. It is, as one preacher once said, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to shoot them anymore. <laughs> Christianity doesn't have a cost anymore. And we've got to be a little bit slow before we accuse those at the pulpit, of not in, the, in the pews, of not understanding that, if the pulpits don't preach that anymore. That uncomfortable truth that it has a price to follow Jesus Christ that there is a, a, a stark difference, an antithesis with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And those in the kingdom of darkness will hate those in the kingdom of light. You see, a Christian cannot live with one foot in the world and with one foot in the kingdom of Christ. You cannot please the world and please God at the same time. You simply cannot serve two masters. Beloved, and here we are at the root of the most devastating temptation of the people of God, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. If you read through redemptive history, if you read through the Bible, you will see this was the cardinal sin always of the people of God. And it is this, it is religious and cultural syncretism. Loving the world, living like the world, while still pretending to be God's people. Trying to have it both ways. To, to be a little Christian soteriolo soteriology, in soteriology, just, just having enough to be saved, but then living a life on the edge of what is necessary to still be saved. To have a pleasant life without problems without hostility, without persecution. 
So both pulpits and the pew focus on soteriology, how we are being saved, on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is true. But what is being denied is the logical ramification of this regeneration and justification, which is a godly life in antithesis to the world. And if that's happening, which is always the proper uh, ramification of a truly converted soul, then there will be hostility. But if you live just like the world, if you enjoy what the world enjoys, if you love what the world loves, then you are not of Christ, but of the world. This is what is not being preached enough today. In a sermon called The Divided Heart, preached on April 14, 1872, Charles Spurgeon preached the following words. He said, He that follows the world with all his heart and thinks that the best is a reasonable man in following it. But he who thinks the world to come the best and yet follows this present evil world, why, what a fool is he? And who shall plead for him? When he stands before God, his prayers will damn him, if nothing else will, for his prayers will be swift witnesses against him that he did know, did feel, and yet he would not act upon his knowledge. End of quote. I try to preach like that today. People will not listen. People will not endure. You get yourself deposed before you can finish the sermon. But there were, and there still are, even in our day and age, many faithful preachers. Beloved, we must take heed of the Spirit's warning in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 15, where he says, Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You have to understand, even being a member in a church like ours and being super conservative and all of that does not automatically make you a true Christian. Fleeing and fully submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that's what makes you a Christian. You have to understand this. When even the Lord's brothers weren't believers at that time, don't you think that it is also possible that there could be unbelievers in the pews of churches like ours? That there are people in our church who played the game, but in their heart of hearts they still love the world and not Christ. But even true believers might sometimes backslide and for a time live like those who love the world. They are of Christ, but they are not willing to sacrifice and truly follow their Lord at, at least for a time. They know what needs to be done. They know the challenge of true discipleship, but they are simply too lazy to live it. Dear brother, dear sister, when your life doesn't clearly show what you really are, when you're not willing to sacrifice anything for Christ, time, money, reputation, pleasure, anything, then you're not a faithful follower of Christ then you are at best a Christian on life support, and the world will leave you alone. 
But when you start to engage this world, when you start to engage the kingdom of darkness and expose its works inside and outside of the church, when you start attending marches for life for the unborn protest in front of abortion clinics, so-called pride parades, when you begin to attend prayer meetings, when you start to challenge the world, separating more and more from it, when you start praying passionately for the lost, when you start evangelizing, when you, as Christ suggests in verse 7, begin to testify of the world that its works are evil, when you start carrying the banner of Christ high, no matter what, when the world sees you following Christ in an uncompromising way, then the world will hate you. I guarantee you that. But God will honor you. As he says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, when the proper time had come, Jesus goes up. Up means elevation. We talked about this because he went actually southbound. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to attend the feast. And he says, or it says, he went there in private or in secret. Maybe he took lesser traveled roads or he was somehow disguised. We don't know and we shouldn't speculate. And at the feast, the Jews, the Jews are usually used in the Gospel of John as a negative connotation of the hostile religious leaders, were asking around where he was. Now, why were they asking where Jesus was? Did they miss him? Were they longing to see him? We can be pretty sure that that was not the case and that their intentions weren't good at all. And we also get a description of the opinions among the multitudes who attended the feast. It says that there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. What a familiar verse. As a pastor, I cannot tell you how much comfort this is to me, that there was much complaining even about the Lord Jesus Christ. Churchgoers were even managing to complain about God incarnate. These are the religious people, the churchgoers. The religious establishment, the conservatives, and they manage to complain, or you can translate to mutter about God incarnate who was without sin. How comforting. Well, if it happened to him, it must happen to us 10,000 times who are pastors today. All the muttering and complaining and all behind backs, all in secret. Because nobody wants to stick their neck out. Everybody mutters and complains in private. Now you have to understand that even those who said that he was a good man were wrong. Because some were saying, no, he's a good man. What, what does a good man mean? But even those were wrong. Because Jesus wasn't just a good man. What this means, good man means morally upright and that's it. It doesn't mean that he was the Messiah, that he was God incarnate. But whatever each one's opinion about Jesus might have been, no one wanted to stick their neck out until the Jewish leaders had spoken the final verdict 
about him. Now, why is that? What was the fear here? Later in chapter 9, after Jesus heals a blind man, the Jews interrogate the man's parents. And these parents were afraid to say anything because it says they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Beloved, that is why the people at the Feast of Tabernacles, there in chapter 7, even if they were supportive of Christ, didn't dare to speak up. They were afraid of the consequences. Not even those who were clearly for him, like the apostles, spoke up. They were just too fearful. We must understand that there is a cost to true discipleship. We must not be silent. We must not be afraid to, to profess the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be willing to pay the price for following our Lord. If our chief end truly is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then we must be willing to pay any price to follow Him. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Being willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ 100%, no matter what, and at the same time knowing that it is all by grace. At the end of the day, however brave or however uncompromising we might have lived, and however bold we might have lived our lives professing Jesus Christ, we will have to say, even the best of us, we are unprofitable servants. And that without Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. Because at the end, once we are in heaven looking back, we will see that it was all amazing grace. Nothing more and nothing less. May God help us to stay strong and bold and devoted to him all the days of our lives. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges and encouragements therein. And we ask you again, O oh Lord, that you grant us humility and boldness at the same time. A bold humility or a humble boldness that we truly live our lives for the glory of your name, not playing games, not being still in love with the world, but walking in the light as he walked in the light. For we ask it in his name and his name alone. And all of God's people say, Amen.